This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. My guest today is author, family law expert, and celebrity divorce attorney, Laura Wasser. Laura has handled some of the most high-profile divorces, the kinds you read about in glossy magazines, and although she usually deals in high-net-worth cases, she is particularly adept at figuring out the least expensive way, both emotionally and financially, for couples to move on, which led her to found It's Over Easy, an online platform that provides education tools and support for families navigating divorce. Today, we talk about how COVID has impacted relationships, marriages, and the court system. We also talk about whether or not she thinks prenups serve a relationship, if the years she's spent in this field have changed her views on marriage and romance, and what to look for in an attorney if it comes to that. We also talk about what it looks like to remain amicable with an ex and the types of cases she'll never take on. She's a very impressive lady and a delight to speak with. I feel like if you know what you're getting into and you're okay with the laws that surround marriage, I think it's an amazing institution. I also think that you can be in a very committed and monogamous relationship without having to have that contract or that piece of paper or invite the state in to dictate how you handle your affairs. Okay, let's get to my chat with Laura Wasser. Thanks for your time. I can only imagine that you are very busy in this time of COVID-19. Is it just nuts? It's not as much as so many people are divorcing. It's that the court orders, which have already been in place uh, for people already divorced or in the midst of divorce when the pandemic started, 
want to adjust their custody orders because, you know, circumstances have changed in terms of health and one person's not being as careful, or maybe the people don't live closely enough to be able to do the kind of custody exchanges, obviously because of the effects the pandemic has had on our economy. People want to change what their child and spousal support orders are. And I think also, and unfortunately, the combination of this like constant anxiety plus depression is making everybody that's also going through what is probably one of the most frightening and miserable and depressing and anxiety producing times that you can go through in a life besides, you know, sickness or death, divorce makes people much more anxious and angry and depressed. And that includes a lot of the attorneys. And so it's just really been difficult and, you know, prohibitively expensive. It's not very much fun, put it that way. And are you, in terms of sort of what's coming in, are you and other, and I know that you have sort of a self-serve, a TurboTax for divorce solution, but are you guys also suggesting that people take a minute just because of these extenuating times? Like, I'm sure you're sort of part counselor, right? Well, all of the cases that we handle at my firm, you know, and again, these are wealthy individuals, high profile individuals, most of them have done some kind of therapy at some point. And so when they come to us, I will always say, you know, God, we're in in the midst of a very difficult situation right now. Have you guys been in therapy? Most of them say yes. And I do say, given what happened in China and how much there was such a surge immediately after when the administrator's offices opened up again. And then a lot of those people ended up getting remarried or getting back together. So I will say, why don't you wait a beat, see how we do on It's Over Easy, which is our online divorce platform, which has a much lower income base generally, and it's a lot easier to use and you're not paying attorneys. We also recommend that people kind of figure out some type of marital counseling, group therapy, even if it's not you know, a one-on-one therapist. If it's a group thing, people can do them on Zoom, webinars, just so that you're not rushing into something that you're going to change the nature of your estate and of your, you know, your living situation before you know for sure that there is no remedy for this marriage. Right. I would imagine, and I don't know if the statistics are out, but don't people, I I was interviewing Daniel Pink and he was just talking about the timing of things in general. And I feel like divorce divorces tend to spike is it after the holidays mm-hmm. and at the beginning of summer sort of just in line with family being together either <laughs> pressure cooking or just trying to get through the holidays or trying to get or sending the kids to camp and then yes. having that opportunity I mean you know yeah. they always, there's no good time for it but yes we do see a big spike in divorces at the beginning of the new year after people have made it through the holidays I think that has to do with as you said you know being with family that the traveling the planes trains and automobiles gen- generally incident to holiday travel and then also the fact you know New Year's resolutions it's a new year I want to get this done and get on with my next chapter what we're seeing now based on timing is I think for the first you know few months people really did try to hunker down and they're now and again a lot of the courts were closed so there was no way of filing anything courts are opening lots is being done online and people are trying to figure out what their next step will be if and when that they decide to move on right and i'm i don't know your process and sort of how you track clients before or after divorce and i know you know we're sort of socialized to think 
like till death do you part and divorce and and I'm not saying divorce wouldn't be a, a t- I hope I never get divorced. However, like when you track people, can you sort of say like, oh, that person's better off? Like typically, like it was a chapter and we're all fed this myth that you need to have one partner for your, for the duration of your life. Absolutely. I mean, I really do believe that I'd say the vast majority of our clients, both at the firm and at It's Over Easy, come back at the end and say, that was definitely not fun, but I am in such a better place right now. And I was afraid to take that leap. And I knew that it was going to be an unpleasant process. However, now that I'm on the other side of it, I really do know that I can go on and kind of live my best life. And I, you know, look, nobody walks down the aisle thinking that they're going to get divorced. People say, well, if you do a prenup, it means you know you're going to get divorced. Not at all. But I do think that once you look at the statistics and you realize that it's definitely a possibility that, and then when it's happening to you, if you can handle it in the most cost-effective and amicable way possible, you will increase your chances of being able to move on and go, you know what? That sucked. However, I'm better now. And this, because it's, I also think we are in a much better situation than in generations past because we do have it as an option, because it is nowhere nearly as taboo as it was when our parents or grandparents might have been getting divorced. And so if it's happening, let's make the situation as painless as possible and move on, because wouldn't you rather be either single or moved on to a next relationship, a next romance, love affair, intimacy, than being stuck in something where you're really not happy? People say they stay together for the kids. Kids don't like seeing unhappy parents. I mean, healthy is kind of shedding whatever isn't working and moving on. Right. No, that makes complete sense. And I've certainly heard my, I've heard that on both sides from friends, sort of that, like, let's have a durable relationship and tell. And then others were like, well, clearly our kids can sense that we kind of despise each other. When you take on a client, are you, and I know that, again, you push people towards sort of the online platform because the the cost of divorce has become so exponential and mm-hmm. so insane. Are you aiming for fairness or getting your client the best deal? Or how do you encourage people to go about even picking a divorce attorney, assuming that they're not going to go online? I think, and I do encourage people to take meetings, do some research. I think if you are about to hire a divorce attorney, you need to make sure that that person is resolution oriented. We're problem Mm -hmm. solvers. That's why we do this. And I do have, unfortunately, some colleagues who aren't who really have taken that, you know, the more you argue, the more money we make to heart and decided to really churn and figure out a way to burn the house down. And unfortunately, that really takes advantage of divorcing parties who are scared and angry. And, you know, so you're if you're stirring that cauldron and you're making people spend more money and argue more as opposed to saying, now let's just take a second here and figure out what makes the most sense. So, you know, I I suppose there might be some people who say, give me the meanest, most difficult, most litigious attorney that I can find because I really want to make my spouse's life miserable. But do keep in mind, particularly if you have kids, the money that you're spending, the aggravation that you're expending, that belongs to both of you. There's In divorce, it's really hard to say, like, I have nothing to lose. That just doesn't work in divorce because it's at some point you were a family. And even right. in paternity matters, if you weren't ever married, but 
You just had kids together. You've got these kids. So what you really, I think, want to look for in not only a representative, but in yourself is problem-solving abilities. How do we think outside of the box? How do we figure out the best way of getting this resolved? And that often is mediation. It's working with a retired judge or a really good neutral. It's finding help with how you schedule your custody arrangement. All of those things. I mean, one thing I will say as a result of having done the work that we did with It's Over Easy is there are so many resources available now to people, not only to educate themselves, but also childcare professionals, mental health professionals, people that can help you with getting you know, new health insurance because it's not available through your spouse's employer anymore because you're no longer married people to help you move, people to help you f- with your finances. There's all kinds of resources out there. Figure out the best and, again, least expensive, both emotionally and financially, way to move on. And if your lawyer is somebody that's going to help with that and be of like mind, then you won half the battle already. Yeah. And how much, because I think that, you know, divorce is sort of a black box, right? And I think that there's this idea that many of us have of these sort of, again, like ratcheting emotions and expenses in a courtroom and that there are things that people do to get more, get less. But but I think we're also kind of wrong, right? Like, aren't there sort of preset, assuming that you don't have, you know, prenups, et cetera, at the onset of your marriage, but isn't it sort of hard to hide money and hard to get sole custody mm-hmm. and... Like, aren't these things already somewhat predetermined and shouldn't they just run their course? Yes. And I think that sometimes, again, you know, a, a good family law attorney will tell you what the law is in your state, what generally happens in your state. I mean, in California, it's community property. So anything that's earned or created after the date of marriage and before the date of separation is going to be split in half. And generally, our courts lean towards joint custody being fairly equal, not always 50-50 down the middle, but equal. And, you know, if you have things that you brought into the marriage, like your futon from college or your first car, that's your separate property, money that you inherit from family. That's the law. Same with support. Generally, it's gui- there's guideline numbers. So you can educate yourself. You can see what it will likely end up happening and see if you can negotiate a better deal. But to spend a bunch of money and court time arguing about something that's patently clear how it's going to turn out seems like a waste. And again, lawyers that will allow that or even encourage it are are not your friend. That's not a good attorney. That's not because our system, frankly, is a bit broken. We're so overtaxed right now throughout the country, particularly in bigger cities and states that have more family law activity, waiting and paying fees and clogging up the system, being able to educate yourself and get it done is so preferable to that. And again, this is probably somebody that you're going to have to deal with for the rest of your life if you have kids, isn't it? And your attorneys are going to be long gone by then. Isn't it better to have somebody that is still a family member, even if you're not sharing a bed with them every night? Yeah. I mean, certainly like this is goop, you know, I think we all firmly believe that the family needs to sort of remain somewhat intact post-marriage, right? Like that's the best thing that you can do for your kids as hard as it may be to swallow your own feelings about your ex. You've created something that might outlast the marriage that is enduring and you have to respect that and service it. 
I think you're a fan of prenups, right? Like in general, do you like the idea of sort of negotiating the potential outcome before you get married? Whether or not you have a prenup, you should be having conversations that you would be having if you did have a prenup. And again, it's not just pre-negotiating the divorce. It's also negotiating what the expectations are in your marriage. So Mm -hmm. find out what the law is in your state before you get married. Everyone says, oh, I don't want a contract for my marriage. That's so unromantic. Well, if you're getting married, it's likely that you have a contract with the venue and the florist and the band and the person who made your dress. You are entering into a contract because the contract is dictated by your state. So figure out what the law is in your state. Figure out if that works for you and speak with your significant other about what each of you expects during the marriage, not just financially and not just legally, but other things, you know, are, are we going to have kids? And if we do and I decide not, not to go back to work, how is that going to look? Because that's going to be a reduction in our, you know, gross income. Will our kids go to private school or public school? How do you feel about my older parents moving in with us as opposed to putting them in insisted living? Talking about those kind of things. What should we be putting away every year for our retirement? And how much should we have as a vacation budget? These are all things that should be discussed. And yeah, it's not super sexy or romantic to have those discussions. But the folks that I have seen have those discussions, whether they end up in a prenuptial agreement or they just are some really great premarital counseling those are the people who are better equipped to deal with issues when they come up in the marriage. And those are people who have the tools to kind of weather the storms. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. When you, when people land sort of in your office, and I know that you actually because of the clientele that you see, I'm sure many of them are sort of pre-protected and and have prenups, et cetera. But if you were to generalize, does having a prenup help or hurt in terms of the sort of like prognosis for the marriage remaining intact? I think they help. And I know maybe I just have my rose-colored glasses on, but I do. I think they help. I think having some of those difficult conversations before marriage, and again, both people have to agree to it. So if somebody ends up signing a prenup and really doesn't feel good about it, that's not good either. Having a prenuptial agreement, understanding the terms, having those conversations, most of the ones that we have done at my firm have resulted in people staying together. And we're very, very careful about how we handle 
prenuptial agreement matters as opposed to handling a divorce. Remember, you're not negotiating divorce. We are, we're, we, I, my younger attorneys that I, you know, mentor, I say, keep in mind, these people are going home together tonight. Let's make sure that they're comfortable, that they feel good, that when they get married in a month or two and they walk down the aisle, they have good feelings about each other and they feel like they've had some really honest conversations about what each of them is bringing to this marriage as opposed to people getting divorced and their negotiations, which might not be as positive. Right. This might be a really dumb question, but bear with me. How do you know, I mean, is the state, the state in which you get married or is it where you have spent a majority of your marriage or where your kids were born? Like, how do you know what applies that's not a dumb question at all. That's a great question. It comes up all the time. So it's where you live. And again, as you can imagine, there are plenty of people who have two or three different homes. But it's if you've got kids, it's where they're in school. There are certain residency requirements before you can file in certain states. And that changes. In California, for example, you have to be here for six months before you can file. And because we have in California such high child and spousal support guideline amounts, a lot of people come here and they want to stay here so that they can then file here so that we cover their law and they will get more money. So we often have jurisdictional arguments. I mean, sometimes it's actually the burden of proof to show, okay, I've got a driver's license in that state. I own a home in that state. I've got bank accounts in that state. My kids go to school there. That's the first thing I ask is if people have kids, where do they go to school? Because that's a very good indicator of residence. And what are, because this has certainly come up for friends or, and not really necessarily friends, but friends of friends, or you hear these horror stories about like spouses alleging abuse or doing sort of insane things. And I'm saying alleging abuse in non-abusive situations or alleging things to try to get, to try to be punitive or to get custody. Like, do you, does that come up a lot or is that more? It has been coming up a lot. It's been coming up a lot and it's really disturbing. We have judicial council meetings discussing it. We have lawyer attorney meetings discussing it. If you're an attorney and you're encouraging that, that's, you know, pretty heinous. But if you're, you know, a litigant and you go in and you make something up about having been abused, I mean, first of all, generally it will turn out that the truth will prevail. And so you've just wasted a bunch of money and time. And if you think about it, there's people who really are being abused that can't get in front of a judge because of your petty claims about something that you're saying happened to you. It also really sets the stage for not a good extrication, if you will. I mean, the problem is, and you were saying before, you know, a goop, we're all for family. I tell people all the time, this is a member of your family. You're not getting rid of them. This wasn't like a, you know, a fender bender on the freeway or a landlord tenant dispute. This is somebody who you're going to know for probably the rest of your life. And it's really important not to start things out in a way where you're accusing them of domestic violence, because that doesn't, that's not something that's easily forgotten, not by your ex and not by a judicial officer who may be here the rest of your case. So be really careful about that. And again, I do feel people uh, come through this, weather this, this storm so much better if they're able to do it amicably, not just because they save money, but because, I mean, I'll give you an example. I have two exes. I wasn't married to either of them, but I've got two kids. And, you know, it's Rosh Hashanah today. They're both coming over for dinner with their new significant others and our kids, and we're all celebrating together. And isn't that nice for me 
that I get to spend time on a holiday with both of my children, as opposed to having to worry about, oh, it's 630, they need to go here and this one goes there. We're all together. We do that for birthdays. My mom passed away last summer. They were both there for me. These are members of my family. We're not in intimate relationships anymore, but I have them to depend upon if things go wrong and when things are good. And that's the way to do it. Yeah. No, certainly. I have heard friends who have managed to have, you know, as healthy a divorce as possible. It sounds similar to what you're describing. And they say that the key in a way is to staying in love with those parts of your partner that you fell in love with at first. Is it their sense of humor? Is it their intelligence? Like finding ways to center and celebrate the things that made you love them in the first place, minus the sexual or intimate parts of your relationship. In terms, just to, to, to finish on the sort of these claims, I'm assuming too, if you go out and you allege domestic violence, like you need police reports and you need to have pictures and, or are people just being so willy nilly that they're just flinging it around? They are unfortunately flinging. You don't need anything to make those allegations, but you do need more than just an allegation in order for a judicial officer to find that there has been domestic violence and to issue either a temporary or a longer term restraining order. So I am in the interesting position where I will sometimes act as a judge pro tem at Los Angeles Superior Court when they're shorthanded or if they're really, really overloaded, which they've been. And generally, rather than, you know, spending a day sitting on the bench, what I'll do is be in chambers reading a bunch of these domestic violence requests, you know, requests for temporary restraining orders. And so there is a certain threshold. There's a certain amount of evidence you have to present. You have to say, you know, what happened. And a lot of times you won't even get in front of a judge because it's just someone like me sitting in a back room reading your declaration as to the events which occurred and determining whether it meets the threshold for issuing a temporary restraining order. It used to be that we as judicial officers, they as judicial officers, would issue them because they're erring on the side of caution. But because of what has been happening lately with all of these false allegations, now we're not issuing them as, as often. And again, think about what that does to the poor people who are really getting the shit beat yeah. out of them and not able to have anybody hear them. It's kind of like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, no, it's really horrendous. And you would think that there would be repercussions on the other side for making false allegations. Ay, ay, ay. Good times. I know. By the way, there are repercussions. I mean, there will always be a day of reckoning. People that think that they can play games with the system, whether that be making false allegations, whether that be withholding a kid because for whatever reason, you know, you're taking advantage of the COVID situation and, oh, he didn't wear a mask and so whatever. Those kind of things, those kind of taking advantage or gaining leverage as a result of, you know, strategic game playing and bad will, that definitely does come around. Judicial officers, take a look at that. They, I have seen judges say the parent less likely to facilitate custodial time is the parent that loses custody. So there is a day of reckoning. It's not just going to be continued bad feelings between you and your spouse. It's also going to be things that eventually it takes longer than we'd like, but that will come to a head. And then, of mm-hmm. course, there's the karma piece of the puzzle. Totally. And the enduring damage to your children, right? Which really you would hope would be your first priority is sort of preserving their goodwill and sense of the other parent. What I always say to people is you have to love your kids more than you hate your ex. Yeah. Oh, I love that. 
And so when clients come to you and they're enraged, right, let's say they've been spurned or which feels like a really antiquated word, but let's say that there's (laughs) an affair or whatever it might be, before they proceed, do you sort of require like a mandatory, are you like, let's cool down before we, or do you just go and try and at the same, like go for what's fair and at the same time try to keep them, like are there clients who are just like, I want it all and go get it for me. Like I'm going to burn the house down. Yes. And those are usually the clients where I say that's probably, we're not a good fit. There will be someone out there that will be happy to take your case and burn your house down. It's just not me. And then sometimes they go, I see like the clarity in their eyes and they go, okay, wait a minute. You're right. Thank you so much for saying that. I don't want to do it. I want you. And sometimes they go, okay, who's that person? Can you give me your number? <laughs> because they're not ready yet. And and sometimes if they do take them, you know, sometimes I have had situations where they will go off and have somebody who tells them what they want to hear. You know, we'll get that house and you'll have full custody and don't worry, he'll pay all the fees. And then, you know, two or three months later, they come back and they go, oh my God, that was a horrible experience. I did not like that lawyer. I'm ready to be realistic now. Will you help me try and settle my case? Right. Okay. That makes sense. Based on on how you spend your time and as you mentioned, you you have, I guess, never been married. Do you believe in the institution or do you think that the whole thing is kind of silly? No, I totally believe in the institution. I was married very, very briefly when I was like 25 for 14 months. We didn't have any kids that we had a dog. He waited out lots of the Same marriage. Thing. He lived until he was 16. But, but, and I'm still friendly with my ex and his family. I loved my wedding. It was at the Bel Air Hotel and I had 10 bridesmaids and he had 10 groomsmen and everyone was young yeah. and, and the flowers were amazing and the party was amazing. I love a good wedding and I do. I do think that the institution of marriage for a lot of people means a certain kind of commitment and a certain kind of security. I know people who still feel that they would not want to have children out of wedlock. That doesn't, that's not my view, but it certainly is other people's. I feel like if you know what you're getting into and you're okay with the laws that surround marriage, I think it's an amazing institution. I also think think that you can be in a very committed and monogamous relationship without having to have that contract or that piece of paper or invite the state in to dictate how you handle your affairs. And I think it's a really personal decision and I don't judge anybody for the choices that they make in that regard. Do you see a lot of of people in your practice twice or do you find like a a (laughs) lot of people get it right the second time? No, I see. Well, here's how I see them twice, actually. It would be three times. So what happens is I do their divorces and then they will often come back and and work with our firm on a prenuptial agreement. So and then I don't often see them again. But yes, then sometimes I'll see them a third time when they come back (laughs) at that. Remember, I live in Southern California and Hollywood. And so I do see a lot of people who either start by getting married very early and very young or just find the newer, you know, hotter model a few years later and decide to marry that person. It just depends. And again, the one thing that I learned very early on in my career is you can't judge. Right. How were you drawn to this work? Like in law school, were you like, this is my thing or like, God, do you no. feel? <laughs> no, I don't think any little girl or boy for that matter, like, you know, says when they're like little and that you, what do you want to be when you grow up? I very much wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> 
Um, my dad is a family law attorney. He, he, I went to work for him when my marriage, my 14-month marriage ended, and I was waiting for the results of my bar exam, and I needed money because I was working for a, a nonprofit, uh, the Western Law Center for Disability Rights, and I was waiting to see if I had passed the California bar, and we split up. And I went to my dad and I said, can I come work here for a little while because I've got credit card debt and I have to pay the lease on our house for myself now. And he said, yeah, if you want to come work here, you can. But no, I never thought that I would go into this field of law. And after I did, and I learned about, like I said, problem solving, figuring out how people are going to get through kind of a crappy situation onto a better situation, and also being able to meet all kinds of people from all different walks of life, whether it's sports figures or entertainers or directors or writers or teachers or bankers, and you get to meet them all and you get to know them really well, maybe better than you'd want to, for like six to 12 to 18 months, and then they move on. And that's yeah. kind of cool because I'm always getting to meet and know new people. And I guess it's interesting to sort of see people at their worst, right? And then sort of buoy them up to their for their next chapter would be kind of fascinating. Yeah, and I do because, you know, LA is a relatively small town and I do see people and I, I am invited to the next weddings and I run into <laughs> and, you know, generally it, it is nice to see that people come through it and that, you know, we, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And for people who are listening, let's say, and they're under their sort of COVID stress, I mean, I love being locked inside of my house with my husband and he's... <laughs> like desperate to escape me. But for those who are sort of wondering, what do you think is sort of that, that critical knowing? Like when do you, and I know you're not a couples therapist, but like at what point are you like, yeah, it's probably time. You know what? It's really interesting. I wrote a book a few years ago and one of the chapters was called, how do you know? Or when do you know? Or something like that. I, I don't know. I think I, what I've said to some people is, when the bad starts to outweigh the good for, for a prolonged period of time, when you are finding yourself being aggravated or sad or, or lacking much more often than you are feeling yourself being fulfilled and loved and heard, I guess that's when. And it's difficult. I mean, I, I, in that chapter, I said, like, if you walk in and your spouse is getting a blowjob from the nanny while your kid's asleep in the other room, that might be the thunderbolt moment when you're like, oh my God, it's time to get divorced. Although, <laughs> okay, I have seen people work through that exact situation and be happily married five or six years later. But otherwise, I do. I think you really need to do some soul searching, think about what it will feel like at the other end of the process if you go through it, and educate yourself. I mean, that's one of the other things about It's Over Easy. We have this great, you know, bank of information so that you can kind of see, you know, the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting When You're Pregnant. We have kind of what to expect when you're getting divorced, which is really how it's going to look and how you can apply the laws to you and your state. Because I think one of the biggest you know, one of the biggest stumbling blocks is just fear of the unknown. And you're right. It is about black box because why would anybody learn or know about divorce if you weren't going through it? It's not exactly the kind of thing that you're going to read up on just for fun. Yeah. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. 
The all-new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. I wonder, and again, this might be sorted before people end up in your life, but I was listening to an Esther Perel episode, and it was in, it was one of her lockdown episodes, and it was with a couple, and I think they had contemplating separating before COVID, or maybe he was having an affair. I don't quite remember, but like he seemed consumed by this affair and sort of dead set on divorce. Like he seemed almost in a spell. And I wonder mm-hmm. how much that happens too, where someone gets sort of spun into an eddy and then this thing carries on and then they wake up and they're like, what did I just do? That happens and we do. We try to, I mean, one of the things that I've gotten good at doing this is kind of getting to know people and getting to know some behavioral patterns. And, you know, I will say to somebody, why don't you give this a minute? Maybe he or she will be back. And maybe by that point you'll have moved on. But before we do this whole thing, let's give it a second. I definitely, and you never know how long. I mean, sometimes the forbidden is so attractive to people that until it becomes not forbidden, in other words, now the parties have separated and this, for example, this guy you're talking about has his affair all to himself and they start playing house. Now it doesn't look so good anymore because it's not the forbidden fruit. Sometimes you have to wait to see that that's going to happen. I mean, and that's what's kind of been interesting about watching how couples have, have fared during this whole COVID thing. You can't just storm out of the house anymore and go have a drink with the guys. You can't, you know, go to book club anymore with your girlfriends and drink Chardonnay and talk about, you know, what a jerk your spouse is. You can't really conduct multiple affairs very easily. Strip clubs are closed, although I heard you can do a drive-through one in Houston, which is interesting. But but (laughs) the point is is that, you know, we've had to, we've been forced to kind of hunker down together. And I think that for some couples, that has actually made us stronger because where we would before just kind of leave the argument, leave the discussion. Now it's there and we're kind of forced to deal with it. And maybe coming out of this, the relationships will be stronger as a result of, you know, honing those tools to be able to communicate and deal with issues. Yeah, because I'm certain that there are certain people who create that same pattern, right? As you were saying, like that, like interest in what's different or what's new, what's fresh and breaking that pattern or attachment pattern seems critical to not repeating the same thing. What, and and this maybe this seems harsh, but at this point when people come in, like are there like 10 types of marriages or five types of marriages? Like how quickly can you sort of assess the situation and know the playbook or is each one just wildly different? I'd say there's probably about six or seven. Don't ask me to like categorize and, and name them, but I just kind of know them. And there's there's like a mix and match. And then, yes, each one brings its own interesting set of facts or quirks or whatever to it. But I can generally tell from a first meeting, and these days it's really a first telephone call, how the case will end up, believe it or not. Given just that first few minutes of here's how long we've been married, here are how many kids we have, this is what I do, this is what the spouse does, this is who's on the other side of the case if there's already been another attorney retained. The two big variables are really how much money is going to be spent in attorney's fees, arguing to try to get away from whatever the basic is, and how much aggravation and you know soul-crushing arguing is going to go on to get you to that place. But really, the ultimate end game is generally seen pretty much from the beginning. Yeah. 
And there's, it seems like if you can accept the reality of how the divorce needs to run its course for sort of a more, the most equitable or natural conclusion, then you just save yourself a lot of pain and suffering. Absolutely. And be nice to yourself during the process. I mean, look, nobody said it was going to be fun. But if it's true that the only way out is through, then during the through, be reasonable and be kind, not only to your about to be ex, but to you. Yeah. And for people, you know, like, I, I don't have a prenup. My husband and I didn't really bring, we brought essentially jack shit to our marriage except for each other. Do you recommend, like in terms of solidifying partnerships, like is it never too late to sort of, obviously you can't do a prenup, but like do you recommend that people create or talk about some of these issues or contracts, even though that seems scary? I recommend that they talk about them. I don't recommend in like your situation a postnuptial agreement. I don't see that that's the point. But I do think it's really important to have conversations, not, hey, honey, (laughs) since we don't have dream night, let's talk about what it would look like if we got divorced. But having conversations about the future, about finances, women in particular, and I know a lot of your goop listeners are women. I mean, we so often kind of abdicate our financial responsibility. Even if we're making money, we still let somebody else take care of the finances. Being in it together, both of you, looking over finances, figuring out what you're investing, what you're saving, what you're earning, what you're spending. That is something, again, I mean, I'm, I, I wouldn't, I'm not nerdy enough to think that's sexy, but I definitely think that what results from it is sexy because if you're in it together and if you're really partners and if you're both leaning on each other and not like one's the little woman and one's the earner and he or she's going to take care of everything, if you're able to be in it together, I really, really think that helps your relationship. And, you know, I still know women who are, you know, often hiding the bags, the shopping bags, and sneaking them into the house when they get home. What I find so interesting is that women who say, look, I want to come to the business manager's office with you once a quarter and and talk about, sorry for the phone in the background, and talk about, you know, our finances and how this works and a budget. Those spouses, whether they be same-sex relationships or man and woman or, you know, man-woman breadwinner and man-spender, those are the really healthy relationships because they know they, they have expectations that are being met and they have a much clearer line of communication with each other. And finally, just in the context of spending and, and whatnot, and I feel like you answered this for us in a story that we did with you on the site, but you can't really hide money anymore, right? Like I know, again, I think that's something that people get fearful of. Like what if my husband or my wife is siphoning money into separate accounts, but that's all trackable, correct? Yes, especially in this day and age. I mean, there is no way that somebody could take a huge chunk of money and move it without it being seen. If you have a plan for several years to be hiding money, misappropriating, whatever, if you've got bank accounts, you know, offshore, whatever, I suppose there's still ways of doing it, but it feels like that would have to be so, you know, over time, small amounts. And again, there are so many computer generated ways to figure out what happened that it really would be difficult, I think, to hide money. We have forensic accountants that work in cases and really look over every single thing. It's not a simple process. It's really hard to hide money, as I, I think I did say in that article that I did for you guys. Yeah. All right. Well, I hope to see you at a wedding sometime because I think it would be really fun to get <laughs> drunk with you. 
thanks for tuning into my chat with Laura Wasser. You can find out more about her platform, It's Over Easy, at itsovereasy.com. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.